Would you turn to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7? But we're going to start with chapter 2. Study for the book of Daniel. We're going to have one more after this. We're taking it pretty quickly, and I hope that you see highlights as well as the main theme of the book of Daniel. My boys like to, from time to time, to play games like the Xbox. I'm, I'm, I assume se several of the young lads sitting here in the front row and scattered throughout would also say the same. These days, not only young boys play Xbox, older boys do as well, or PlayStation. And I know that they have all these different numbers to them. Is it PlayStation 3 or 4? I'm not sure. Um, it might be Nintendo. It might, that's what I played. Maybe you played Atari, or Wii, or, play, or the different, I already mentioned PlayStations. Anybody have a Game Boy or a Sega Genesis? I did. Uh, one of the things that all of these game consoles have in common is they have a device that has buttons and levers to control what is going on on the screen. We call them, what are they called? Controllers, okay, yeah, controllers. Um, you see, really good gamers can, can control the games. Not so good ones have a hard time using the controllers. Whether it be a mother, a wife, a boss, a dad, a boyfriend, a grandma, or just a friend, people like to control they want to control relationships, our plans, our schedules, the, lives, the lives of our kids, the ways things will turn out. We want to keep bad things away and we want the good. But I want us to ask this question, who really is in control? I mean, is it, is it our president? President Trump, or is it a president in China, or Putin in Russia, or Kim Jong-un in North Korea, Queen of England? Uh, we all could sit here and go, I know they're not really in control. That's not even how this world works now. So what about some other controllers in our, in our world, like Bill Gates, or Bezos of Amazon, or the owners of Google, or Facebook, or other online controllers? What about the lobbyists in Washington, D.C., or the lawyers with the big class action lawsuits? What about you? Are you in control? Well, if any human being could have been in control, it would be a dictator in ancient times with the largest, grandest, most glorious empire the world had yet seen. And this man's name was Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. It's around 602 or 3 B.C., 600 years before Jesus would be born. 
the Israelites, God's people, especially the Jews of Judah, had been taken into captive because time after time they had been warned to repent and turn to Yahweh, their God, and they continually rebelled and went after other idols. And finally, God, as he had promised, said, enough. And he, through a series of waves, the Babylonians came and sacked, destroyed Jerusalem, and took wave after wave of Jews, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them from the Judah region, far east, to what is now Iraq and Babylonia. Question could be, is God the Almighty, is He in control? There was a few faithful to Yahweh, but only a few Is the almighty God of Abraham, of Isaac, and David, is he almighty? Is he he still in control? What about the, the royal line of David and the wisdom of Solomon? Is God still wise? What is going on? And that's where we are in the book of Daniel. You could read in Daniel 1, and if you're there, you can, because you were in Daniel 2, you can go one chapter before. And in Daniel chapter 1, 1 and 2, it says, The third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. So that's what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar and this king of Judah. And yet we find out what's really going on because man can make plans, but God is in control. And we see in verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And so with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. God did this. God is in control. I, I recently was looking at uh, some notes from 1 Samuel, and I came across this quote because a year ago we were in 1 Samuel, and we were seeing the ups and downs of Israel, and I came across this quote, the course of the kingdom of God is a series of great triumphs cleverly camouflaged as disasters. Let me say that again. The course of the kingdom of God is a series of great triumphs cleverly camouflaged as disasters. Because God is working His sovereign will through the the disasters that appear in human history. Isn't that true? When Pontius Pilate executes, sends for the execution of Jesus. It's cleverly camouflaged as a disaster, but in reality, God in his sovereign plan is advancing his kingdom, and it is no different in the book of Daniel. God is on the throne. God is at work, and that is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at these two chapters, and I want you to see once again something that I've said the last two weeks. You have them in the back page of your bulletin, And I put it all there so that you could just read it because it's a lot of bullets. But it's this. The God of the Bible is the God most high. This God rules and reigns supreme over all the kings and powers and peoples of the world, including your friends and family, including this nation. Moreover, this sovereign God rules in the midst of proud and rebellious, and wicked people, and all the while he is preserving a remnant few who will faithfully trust in God against all human odds. 
think Daniel, tweak. This most high God is always just. He is always right and he will judge. And his enemies will ultimately defeat it and his word will be perfectly fulfilled. These truths are so important for you and I, not so that we could pass a theology exam, but so that we would have a worldview shaping our minds and our hearts as we live for the rest of our lives, whether it be interacting with our friends and our work, making decisions for the future, how we spend, how we direct the courses, the course of our life. And in chapters 2 and 7, we come to some very bizarre stories. So let's look at them. I, I want to give to you an overview of what's going on in chapter 2. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 7. Chapter 2 is a really long chapter. Chapter 7 is a little shorter. And the reason I want to do that is Daniel designed in the writing and then putting together of all these of this manuscript, 2 and 7 are parallel. I explained this in, in my first sermon. There's a chiasm, and they're parallel. They correspond to each other, and they're meant to look at them and kind of compare and see. In chapter 2, we have four things going on, and followed by something, number 5, that's really significant, and you're going to see the same thing in chapter 7. Four things going on with the fifth following the four, and actually consuming the other four. Well, let's see what it is. Both of them are dreams. Both of One is the dream from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Daniel's going to interpret it. The second one in chapter 7 is Daniel's dream. Both are disturbing, and both reveal either something similar or the same, but from a different angle. So let's look at them. Chapter 2. This chapter could be divided up into four sections. So if you're kind of a note taker, or you want to just get a mental map, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through both of these chapters, and I just want to, I want to do what I did last week, then just kind of bring an application to this. Chapter 2 gives us four things, four divided into four things, I should say. The king and his advisors, that's number one. Then two, the, God reveals a mystery to Daniel. And three, the, the dream and its meeting, and then the king's response. So let's read part of it. Look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. We've already seen his other dreams. Remember he had the dreams and he was going to go mad and then live with the wild for a while and God would humble him. That's chapter 4. This is chapter 2. Then the king commanded. So I'm going to summarize here. The king commanded. He was so disturbed by his dream he needed the meaning of this dream, so he commanded all his magicians, all his sorcerers, this group called the Chaldeans, and all of them, and he said, you come here, you need to tell me what my dream was, and you need to tell me what my dream means, and here's, here's the perks, and here's, here's the problem. If you don't tell me what it is, limb to limb, you're going to be ripped apart. There's, for, there's some pressure, and, and if you tell me you're going to be like the big man on campus in this kingdom. I mean, you're going to be given all authority. You're going to be given great honor. Well, we find here that these magicians and Chaldeans said to him, O King, forget forever. This is verse 4. Tell your servant the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. The king answers, this word is firm. If you don't know what the dream is and its interpretation, 
enough. Limb from limb, you're torn, you're torn apart. You need to tell me. But if you show me the dream, you'll receive honor. The king answered. And they said to him a second time, come on, king. The king they said, let the king tell his servant the dream and we'll show you its interpretation. The king answered, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word is firm for me. And they can't do it. And they say, nobody. The Chaldeans said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of a magician or an enchanter or a Chaldean. This, the thing that the king asks is difficult. and No one can show it to the king except the gods who does not dwell with flesh. Because of this, the king was so angry and he sent to kill all that were in this group. Well, that group included Daniel and his friends. He was so mad. I, I just, I'm going to stop here and just say, we could spend sermons on each section of these, these parts. We could say, see that what we see in Nebuchadnezzar is really the picture of mankind in that they're hostile and insecure. This is, if there's anybody who's in control, it's Nebuchadnezzar. But he's out of control in this. He, he got a dream. He has everything, but he has a dream. He needs to know what this dream is because he knows it's important. And he cannot command loud enough to get this dream interpreted. He's insecure. He knows there's something wrong. And he's hostile. So en enters God and Daniel. As we move from 14 to 23, God reveals the mystery to Daniel. So Daniel finds out that he's going to die. And he says, what's the rush? What's going on here? And he hears about it. So he must have not have been in the regular reports at first. And so he asks for time. He says, give me some time and I'm going to seek the Lord. And so in verse 17, Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he told them to seek the mercy from God of heaven concerning his mystery so Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I just want to say this. We don't, we don't often think about this. But the threat of God's remnant to be wiped out from the earth was about to happen. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the only recorded faithful in the story. And they are about to be destroyed. And they seek God for protection. And God is going to give it to them. It says in verse 19 that the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Just look with me at verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and to the knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what you've asked and so then we move into the tr verses 24 through much of the chapter to 45, where we find the dream and its interpretation. And so Daniel says, can I talk to the king? He comes to the king and he makes it clear. He says in verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So you got that? It's God, his wisdom. He's giving it to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's about knowledge of the latter days. Here's what he says. He says, on your, in your, while you lay in your bed, O king. And then he tells a story of four images, of one image, one great image with four parts. Look at verse 31. You saw a king and behold a great image. This image mighty and even an exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands. Okay, whenever the Bible says something with no human hands, it means God did it. It's of God. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Wow. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them. And he's, by the way, that God did that to you. Another, you're, you are the head of gold. I think Nebuchadnezzar is like pretty proud. He's pretty excited. I'm the top of it. I am, I'm the main thing. I'm beautiful. I'm gold. 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, please watch, look at this verse. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. 
Let me just share with you this. I'm, I'm not going to get into all the details because you could read from Daniel, all the chapters of Daniel, and you're going to start to get into some images and visions and interpretations. And you could read five commentaries and you, will get, you might get five different interpretations, but there are some things that are similar. And almost everybody agrees this, that at around 600 BC, God was giving this to, to Nebuchadnezzar and all of these kingdoms had not taken place, but Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom is the head of gold. And he says, another kingdom that's going to come after you is this chest of silver. And that was the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus the Great. And after that, in the torso below, in the middle torso, will be the Greek Empire. It's bronze. And after, in fact, later in Daniel, he's going to talk about the Greek Empire by name. He's really referring to Alexander the Great. And after that, the legs and the feet was none other than the Roman Empire. And in both in this chapter and in chapter 7, there's something special and unique about this. It's vulnerable, it's brittle, but it's still strong and it crushes its enemy. Just like the Roman Empire did. But he says, a little stone not made by human hands, is going to come and it's going to, it's going to strike this image. It doesn't even say it's going, to, it's going to, it's this big boulder. It doesn't say it's a huge boulder. Huge boulder. It's a stone that comes and it breaks this image and crushes it. And it crushes all of the image so much so that it's like ground to powder or like flour or like just weeds and the wind just blows it away and it's gone. And he says, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's move to chapter 7 real quickly. Move to chapter 7. Before I get to chapter 7, I didn't give you the response. What we find is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get angry. I think Nebuchadnezzar, all he's thinking about is the head. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm great. I'm shining bright. He's thinking like Hezekiah did. I'm going to live 15 more years. I don't care if my son is in bad shape after me. I'm just, I'm, I'm glad I, I'm a great kingdom. But really this dream was saying, your kingdom has its, is numbered. And the Medes and the Persians are numbered. And the Greeks are numbered. And the Romans are numbered. But there's going to be a king whose days will never be numbered. And will reign forever and ever. So we move in chapter, so, so actually Nebuchadnezzar bows down before Daniel. I don't think he was worshiping Daniel. Daniel doesn't say, stop, quit worshiping me. Daniel knows he's actually worshiping the God of gods and kings of Lord of lords, revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal the mystery. Nebuchadnezzar was not converted or saved in this chapter. I think he might have been in chapter 4, but here he's not because in the next chapter, he's going to make an image and say everybody has to bow down to it. Now let's move to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we have Daniel. It's now the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That could be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's still alive. Nebuchadnezzar's dead. Daniel's still ticking. He's going to go on and enter into another kingdom, the, ba the, the Persian Empire. He's going to still live on. And as he enters this, we now enter a section from 7 to really the end of 
chapter 12 of Daniel, we have some really strange language. Many call it apocalyptic literature. There's a use of a lot of symbolic pictures and images very similar to the book of Revelation. I'm sure you all have the book of Revelation figured out, right? So in in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a dream. And he, he lays his head on the bed, and he wrote the dream. After this, he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. And he says this I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea. That's just symbolism of there is chaos and disaster. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. You, and your ear should go, Four? Hey, that's interesting. We just saw four kingdoms in chapter two. Yes, I think almost they're talking about the same thing. Four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had it eagle's wings. So a hybrid of lion, eagle. That's the first one. Then I looked at its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, now we move to the second beast. Verse 5. A second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. The great Persian Empire. And then we move in verse 6 to the third one. And after I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings. Here's another hybrid animal. With four wings of a bird. Leopards are fast. So was... Alexander the Great, who so quickly conquered the known world that he wept because there were no other lands to conquer. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw the night visions and behold, a fourth beast. You remember the fourth beast was powerful but vulnerable in chapter 2. This one's significant. After this, I saw a night vision, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that was before it and had ten horns. Some say that's ten kings of Rome. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up upon them another horn, a little one, which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of men and the mouth speaking great things. So the, the dream starts with horror, uh, terror, four horrible beasts. Uh, the, the, the reader in Daniel at that time, and the reader should go, this is a, a horrible terrorizing image, something bad is happening. The imagery in the ancient world of even the seas, the four winds of the sea, it's, that's calamity and disaster and chaos. Now we move to heavenly power. Because in verse 9 it says, and I looked. So it's kind of like a movie and you, you got one scene and now he's like, here's another scene. It blends into the next. And I looked and thrones were placed. And it's a, a man figure. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. 
And the hair of his head were pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Remember the horn earlier. So here is a judge on the throne room. He's mighty. I think he is all wisdom. He is all righteous. He will judge. And he's called the Ancient of Days. And then there's a horn. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I looked and the beast was killed. And its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now we look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look at verse 13 again, please. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and he was given dominion and glory, a kingdom that will never end. 600 and maybe 600 years later, Caiaphas the high priest would look to a Jew named Jesus of Nazareth and say, are you the anointed one, the son of God? And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on. No wonder the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Because what he was saying is, this image of Daniel, I am. That's what Jesus was saying as he stood before Caiaphas, the high priest. That that Son of Man which is the title that Jesus likes to use in the Gospels, and it doesn't mean just a shorthand, he's a man. It is a technical term to to think of God's sovereign rule, and we actually learn his suffering work. Because Jesus is also going to say, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's happening 600 years before is Daniel has a dream that kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, the kingdom will come and go. And then the ancient of days, God is going to stand before the son of man and say, here's your kingdom reign forevermore. And that's what happened 600 years later, when Jesus was born, lived, was tried, went to the cross, rose from the dead, was given all authority and power by Jesus and said, 
I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father until I make all my enemies a footstool, and I'm going to send my spirit into the world, and I'm going to give my church my power through this book, the gospel, and through my Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you're going to do miraculous things not through your might and not your, through your power, but because this King Jesus is in charge now and everything's changed. Now, that's jumping ahead. I'm, I'm going to move back to this story. Now, the rest of the chapter, verses 15 through 28, is the divine victory. In fact, the focus on this divine victory is the saints of the Most High. Like verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever and ever. Because, you see, these four kings, these beasts are going to be destroyed. And, and, they're, and I'm not going to focus on all of these today. Verse 27, it says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominion shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. And my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, I want to tell you that the book of Daniel was written for the people of Israel at the time, and then for the people between the time of Daniel over that 600 years. And, and even as it came to Jesus' time, Jesus makes it very clear that Daniel was talking about these events as he, in the Olivet Discourse in, Daniel, in Matthew chapter 24, he even refers to Daniel. But Jesus is the fulfillment of two and seven as the rock that would come and crush. He is the fulfillment of the great son of man who will come and be given a kingdom. Now, we, we can spend time, though we're not, trying to figure out the nuances of all of these meanings. And in fact, there's, there's great studies in the rest of this book as you read, and you could see, okay, maybe that was that Greek leader, and that was Antiochus Epiphanes who, who did that, and he, he brought upon a desolation in Jerusalem at such and such a time. And you can read through the rest of Daniel, which we're not going to do. But I'll tell you one thing that God does want us to get from the book of Daniel today. Not to be so fascinated about, okay, what's going to happen next in human history? It's 2019 and 2000 whatever. Well, the Bible doesn't say or give us any dates. What's going to happen in the future? Other than it does say that Jesus Christ or this son of man, which I think is clearly Jesus, and this rock that would come is going to expand and gloriously rule forevermore. Jesus will return. Jesus is going to come in power and glory. He has come and he's going to come again. Here's what I want us all to get as we wrap up this passage. The main point is God is in control. Do you see that in the book of Daniel? God is in control in chapter 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And God is in control in Daniel's dream against these mighty beasts. As the Son of Man is given authority to completely defeat these beasts. Because the God of the Bible is the God most high. He rules and reigns supreme over kings and powers, over all peoples of the earth, including you and me and our friends that we might fear or who threaten us, over hostile governments and over threats against our culture. God is over all. He is infinitely, and, and I want us to hear this. It's in your notes in the back page. 
because we see it highlighted especially in these two chapters. Not only is God in control, God is in control because he is infinitely and eternally wise, good, and powerful. These are important. God is infinitely and eternally wise, and he's good and powerful. Throughout these two chapters, you see the wisdom of God. It's only God who has wisdom to reveal. It is God who has wisdom to plan these things out. It's Daniel who got on his knees and he said to, he said to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would you pray for the mercy of God that he would give us wisdom to understand this? The God only wise has planned to bring these four kingdoms and enemies against the state of God's kingdom and to do it this way. God never makes mistakes, brothers and sisters. He always knows what is best. He's never wrong. His timing in your life is perfect. He has knowledge, and he shapes the contours of human history. He has, he has everything in control on who's the dictator in North Korea and who's the president of the United States in this decade and last decade and 10 decades before. He is the sovereign over our governors and over our elected officials and over your boss and over who your spouse is and whoever your parents happen to be. This sovereign God is really wise and he has never made a mistake about you or about anything else. And he's good. By this I mean he is right and he is just and he is holy, he is also loving, he is generous, he is so kind and merciful, and he's slow to anger, but he is right, and he is just, and he will crush all wrongdoing in those he is good. And we see the goodness of God even revealing himself to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who to some degree repents in this story, but ultimately his kingdom is going to just be in the ashes of history because there's a king that's coming that's going to outshine them all. Because you see, God is also powerful. How pathetic it would be if God was all wise and all good, but had no power to take control of matters. But the reality is, all of the Bible, from Isaiah 40, where all the nations are like one drop in a bucket, and all the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. And he knows all the stars. And he keeps them numbered and knows their name. And not one of them is lost to him. All of those things, he is in control. How strong, how mighty. All the kings and kingdoms and galaxies and stars. And the winds and the laws of nature and angels and spirits. Human beings. They're all sustained by the word of his power. And they yield to his almighty decrees. His name is God Almighty. And so these stories are meant for 21st century Americans and Koreans and any other part of the world to sit and bow before the King of Ages, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and to say, God, you're in control. I trust you. Do you see what this is? As I conclude, this, these chapters are meant to be warnings to the wicked and promises to the faithful. Warnings to the wicked and promise to the faithful.
They are men for the wicked. Choosing your own path, you think either somebody else is in control, not God, or yourself is in control, or you want to be in control. And the wicked, they go their own way. They thank their own ways. They don't thank God. They don't trust God. And oh, this story is meant for us to bow the knee and say, oh God, forgive me. And I want to turn. I want to be warned. Because kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Pharaoh and Alexander the Great and Frederick II of Prussia and King Tutankhamun Kunhaman and Peter of Russia and Akbar of India and Caesar Augustus and Cyrus the Great, King Henry VIII, Attila the Hun, Louis XIV of France, Genghis Khan, they all, for the most part, lived for their own glory, their own honor. Their kingdoms were great. They rested in their own wisdom, might, and goodness, and they are no more. All wicked kings, all wicked, that do not find their righteousness in God through Christ and put their own hope in themselves will be destroyed. But to the faithful, we the faithful, if we're believers in Christ, we should see these stories, these dreams, and they, they should cause our hearts to say, God is in control. Jesus is king. The one whom I've trusted in, the gospel is real. God's word was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before and came to pass. I can believe in it. He will bring justice and goodness and truth his loving power on the earth someday, whether it's when he returns or he's working now in some mystery. He is right now working mysterious ways and he will someday when he returns. The faithful realize that we deserve none of this. We believers, we don't deserve God's good shining rain upon us, but the faithful are made faithful by the grace of God. And so the son of man that we saw in Daniel 7 is Jesus Christ, the one who would come and lay down his life and defeat all of these evil kingdoms. And it is in him we put our trust. And if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you must or you will regret it. You must repent of and bow to that king now before it's too late. I, I want to just end with this. I, and I put them in the notes there because they're just a lot of verbiage, but they're really good. And I just want you to have that there to ponder as I, as I read this at the end. You can go take that and look at it tomorrow, this week. These two dreams are meant to build our faith in God as his people. And here, here are eight things. Because God is in control his word better be known and believed. And because God is in control, his commands need to be feared and obeyed. And because God is in control, his promises can be trusted and treasured. Because God is in control, his wisdom is always flawless and trustworthy. And because God is in control, his ways often appear mysterious, but always perfect. Because God is in control, his enemies will ultimately be judged and destroyed. Because God is in control, his mercy can be received freely and fully in Christ. And because God is in control, his son will reign triumphantly, both now in a certain way, but, but forevermore in ultimate glory. 
Are you in the, on the right side of history? It's, it's bowing the knee to Jesus. I'm going to end with this story that illustrates faith in the one that is in control. I, I love September because that means football season. And, and the Packers. And, and I'm sorry about that, but I, and I, I watch all 16 games, even if I, they're not live, I DVR them. And there'll be some times when I'll have a service here, we'll have a meetings, and I DVR it, and I'll watch it later, and I'll be like driving home, and I'll turn all my notifications off, but sometimes someone sneaks through, and, hey, wasn't that a good game? And I'm like, oh. So I, I kind of close my ears, and I wait till I get there. And so they say, just a mat now... Here's how it is for a, a diehard fan. The, bigger you, the better you are and the bigger game it is, the more exciting it is and the more emotionally attached you get to it. So just imagine the Super Bowl. Say we had an event on Super Bowl Sunday. The Packers were in it. They play a game, and I can't make the Super Bowl, so I get home. I don't find out who won, and I turn on the DVR because I'm going to watch it with my family. But on my way home, someone calls me, and I think it's some emergency, and they go, wasn't that an awesome game? It's amazing. The Packers are the Super Bowl champions again. And then they hang up. Now, how, how would I feel? I'd probably feel a little bit mixed. On one side, I'd be like, yes, that's, that's good news. I mean, it'd be bad if it was the other way. But I'd also be really mad that they told me because I wanted to enjoy it with my family. But imagine I, I drive home, and I say, I'm not going to tell my kids, and I'm not going to tell... Uh, my wife, and we're going to watch it. I'm not even going to let them know I know. We're just going to enjoy this game as the, the drama unfolds. This person was trustworthy. I know that what's going to happen. The Packers are Super Bowl champions. It was a good game. We're champions again. We, that's how we speak. We're champions again. So, so we, I watched the game. And w- imagine me watching the game, and we're fast-forwarding the commercials, and we see, ugh, Rodgers threw three interceptions in the first half, and we're down 21-3. to three. Now, if I believed that phone call, I'd be like, it's okay, we win in the end. In fact, the worse it gets, the more dramatic and exciting it's going to be at the end. So I'm sitting there, and my family is freaking out. They're all, well, we should just turn it off. It's over. We can't win. Right, let's, just, let's just find out what happens. And as we watch through, my, 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 my anxiety level would be really small. If I really believed that true, my anxiety, and they'd be looking at me, boy, Dad, Dad, you just are so in control of how things are going here. And the reality is I had, I had a promise or I had a knowledge of what was going to happen. The, the knowledge of we are going to win in the end controlled my affections and my emotions enough so that when really hard and bad things happen, as the game develops, I go, it's okay, it's just going to be all the better when we win. So authoritatively declared we win in the end. Jesus triumphs over sin and Satan and all the kingdoms of the world. Be on the right side of history by bowing the knee to King Jesus and trusting in him. But that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be inter- the, the challenges, the struggles that are going to happen. But it's only going to make the glory of what he's going to do the greater. Because... So often, God in his sovereignty, he disguises his triumphs with calamities that look like calamities. But in reality, God is designing a perfect plan. Oh, that we would live 
we can't live anxiety-less for the most part. We're frail human beings, but oh, that we would live knowing that we win in the end, that we're trusting in the good news. We would go about watching politics, engaging in politics, engaging with our neighbors, engaging with each other with an attitude that says, my God is on the throne and he does all that he wills. He is in control. I'm not in control. I love him. I am not going to fret, but I'm going to put my trust in him. And I want to be used by him to demonstrate his kingly rule by, by loving and sharing this good news and living out who he is to this world. Let's pray. Father.